ran out in the end. That's not Another one's good, though. All right. Becca, did you get your little cheat sheet recording gun? We're good? All right. Good. So this is our last week, week number seven, is we've been going through the, the seven kind of distinctive points of doctrine of the AGC. So the AGC is the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada. That is the grouping of churches that we belong to. Uh, and so these are core issues of doctrine. These are things we think are vitally important to understand Jesus, to understand salvation. Uh, there's a lot of room in many areas of theology for us to uh, agree to disagree on and have good conversation and we can be on different ends of the spectrum and still be united together in Christ. These seven issues are things that we believe are central, that if we waver on these really impact a lot of the other areas uh, of our belief and can be very dangerous. So the first thing that we looked at, and I'm just going to give you the overview. If you uh, are interested in catching up, all these are available online at BanffParkChurch.com. Uh, but this is what we looked at. First, we looked at scriptures. Uh, so the, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, what it is there for, and everything goes back to the scriptures. We then studied God, who God is. We looked at angels and kind of the origin of evil. We looked at mankind, which we would kind of define as the depravity of man, what our, the real condition of our heart is. And then we looked at redemption and salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then last week, we studied through what the church is and what it is meant to look like and how we are meant to live. That brings us to this, end times. And I've got to clarify that as we go through this here, this is an interesting one because when the AGC, so we used to have like, I don't remember what it was, Is that better? Oh, won't do that again. We had about like 27 or 30 or something like that, different points on our doctrinal statement. And we realized that in that, like I mentioned earlier, is there's a lot of room to agree to disagree on some of those points. And so as they narrowed it down to what they thought were central, this one took the most discussion and the most time to deal with uh, because there's a few details in it that are, oh, I don't really know how to say this very well. The overall theme of this point that we're going to read is very important. But there's a couple of details in there that, that I don't know that are super important. But at the same time, as we studied through them, uh, as the AGC kind of talked about this, they said, we're going to write in what we believe is biblically consistent for the whole statement so that we don't waver, so that we're not wishy-washy about anything. But what I'm going to say here is this statement, there's a little bit of room for interpretation, specifically on two points. And I, I'm going to bring those points up when we talk about it. But the overall statement is, is really good and really central to our understanding of God's salvation plan uh, leading to the very end. So, Becca, if you want to put on the screen, and you can uh, look at this with me as I read this. This is our statement. At a time known only to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ will return bodily and in glory, receiving his own and establish his earthly thousand-year reign. God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world. The unsaved will be cast into the lake of fire to suffer eternal conscious punishment. The saved of all ages will be forever with the Lord. God will rule over his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. So there's kind of four little sentences there that I'm going to deal with, and I'm going to go a little bit out of order. Um, 
I guess just because this is how I wrote my sermon and I tried to rewrite it this morning and that just never really materialized very good. So we're going to go a little bit out of order to deal with this, but we're going to deal with each of those sentences and then there's two little points that I'm just going to, when we get to, I'm just going to make some clarification on and, and discuss. So the first thing that I want to talk about here is what we think of when we think of the end times is we often call it the second coming of Christ. Right, so Jesus comes the first time, uh, which we're going to celebrate in actually not all that long. Right, Christmas is actually almost here. It's crazy to think it's November already. But so Jesus comes the first time, right, and then he lives on the earth for those 33 years. And from age 30 to 33, does his ministry, shows that he is the Messiah, dies on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And then he raises to life, and then he, uh, and, th- and then he has some interaction with some people, which we're going to read this morning for a little bit. And then he goes back to heaven. And now we as the church, we wait for the second coming when he's going to come again. So that's kind of what we think of when we think of the end time stuff. But there's a lot of details that come with that. The first thing that I want to deal with, and I know it's a little bit out of order, but the first thing that I want to deal with is the judgment. So what we read in 2 Corinthians 5 5 verse 10 is this. Apostle Paul writes this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this idea of redemption and salvation. So when Jesus comes, when Jesus dies on the cross, his sacrifice is the only sufficient sacrifice that can forgive sin. Is the reality, we all are guilty of breaking the law. So if you read through uh, the, the Ten Commandments specifically, if you read through them, you don't even have to get very far before you realize, oh, I've broken that. And like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is no matter how many good things or, or how good we perceive ourselves to be as a whole, those things don't all of a sudden make us innocent of the law that we have broken. And so that's the reason that Jesus... Uh, wa- why it's so important that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, that he was not born with sin nature, and then he lived his life perfectly without sin, so he was the only one who could offer himself up in our place. It's what we call salvation. Uh, And then when, now when we look at the second coming, is he's going to come and he's going to bring judgment to the world. He's going to separate us, as Scripture says. It says as we're going to separate us from the sheep with the goats. So there's two options kind of in front of us. Is Have we repented of our sin? Have we chosen to make Jesus our Lord and Savior and chosen to follow after him? Or have we rejected him? So this judgment that is coming, Jesus alone has the authority to do that when he comes the second time. And I'm going to deal a little bit more with some of that in, in just a minute. But the essential part of the statement is understanding, first of all, that Jesus is going to come again. That Jesus is going to judge the world. Those are kind of the two most important things. And then that there's, with that judgment comes either heaven or hell, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. And then there's going to be, um, when we do go to heaven, those of us who have believed and confessed Jesus, when we do go to heaven, then we live forever with God in eternity. So those are kind of the essential parts. Then there's two kind of statements that I'm going to clarify. One is this millennial reign, which is why we kind of ripped up the 
pan-millennialism. We don't like that statement. But we're going to talk about the millennium just really briefly. And, and I don't actually think that that literal thousand-year reign that we have written in there is essential to believe. I do think it's correct, and I'm going to explain through Scripture why I think that. But I'm going to show a couple other alternative interpretations of that that I think are okay to, to hold to as well. And then we're going to deal with the wording eternal conscious punishment in, in relation to hell and why I think that's important, uh, especially in, in light of what's happening in today's kind of evangelicalism. So the very first part of our statement says this, at a time known only to God the Father, the Lord Jesus will return bodily in glory. So that's important uh, for a number of reasons, but I want to read to you just a couple of scripture passages to show that this is not just something that we think, but this is something written in scripture. So I'm going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you can flip there with me if you'd like, but we're going to end up in Revelation here mostly. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And read starting in verse 13. Paul writes this to the Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus says it this way, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So these are just two examples of this end time, the second coming of Jesus being talked about in Scripture. But we start that statement of the end times with nobody knows when. And in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says it very plainly. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. In fact, in the book of Acts, so after Jesus dies on the cross, and then he rises and he reveals himself to several people, including the disciples. Uh, in in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples look to Jesus and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I could preach a whole sermon just on that uh, because I wrote an 18-page paper on that for seminary, uh, just that one verse in Scripture. And what we look at, and, and really what, what they're trying to say is they were expecting a very specific idea of what the second coming of Jesus would look like. And Jesus kind of clarifies uh, over the course of time what that's going to look like, look like. But here's his response. In verse 7, he says, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. We don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know, not Jesus even says it this far, I don't even know. Now, when he goes 
back to heaven and he receives his glorified body, obviously he then knows. But while he was on earth, while his power was limited, he didn't know. And he says the angels don't know. Only the Father knows. And the reason that that's important for us now is because so many people are trying to, to figure out exactly when this is going to happen. And perhaps you've read some of these books or seen some of these things, but many people have gone through Revelation, Daniel, Thessalonians, a few places that talk about the end, and they've looked at like numerology and figured out numbers and, and figured out patterns and rhythms, and, and then somehow they come up with some kind of random date and then say, this is when Jesus is going to come. But they're ignoring the very fact that Jesus says, you don't know, and you're not going to know. And in fact, in Acts, he says, it's not for you to know these things. These are for God to know. And I picked on this book several times, but I, I looked it up just to make sure I give you the right title. But it says this, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. That didn't work. And then the author wrote 89 Reasons. It'll actually be in 1989, and then that didn't work. And I don't think he wrote another book after that about the rapture, right? Because at some point, you get discredited realizing that, oh, it didn't happen. And I think sometimes we get so hung up on when is this going to be that we ignore the fact that Jesus said, you don't know. And the reason we don't know is so that we can't just put a date in our calendar in the future and go, this is when this is going to happen. So, so I can live however I want until right then, and then I'll fix everything in my life, and then we'll be good. Mankind has a way of trying to do that sort of thing. In 2012, uh, you might remember the end of the world was supposed to happen, right? In 2001, with the Y2K thing, right? Like, wait, was that 2000? 99 into 2000? See, I don't even know when all these things happened. Is all of these times people have been so excited about saying, this is the end of the world. This is when it's come. This is why. And it never seems to happen this way. I, I once heard someone say it this way, and I thought this was funny. He was having a conversation with somebody, and that somebody said, uh, according to Scripture, right, and then he interpreted the way that he wanted to, to say, this is going to happen when, at this date. And he gave him a specific date. And this person I, I, I know responded this way. Well, I don't know when Jesus is going to come, but based on what you've just said, I now know when he's not going to come. Obviously said with some humor. But in that sense, is the Bible simply teaches us that we will not know. And this is why we started with, in our, in our seven points of doctrine, we started with Scripture being the sole authority. We call it Scripture being sufficient. Is it teaches us what we need to know. And anything that goes against or anything that contradicts what Scripture already has written for us is not true. And so when people come out and they say, I have been given divine revelation, yes, people do we're not supposed to know back in biblical times when, when the second coming of Christ is, but God has spoken directly to me, so I know. And then they tell people. is They're going against what Scripture says, and they're trying to make themselves some kind of a modern-day prophet that has special revelation given only to them when through Hebrews and through Revelation it says very clearly the Word of God is sufficient. And that's what we believe, and that's what we hold to. And so if somebody comes to you and says, I know when the second coming of Christ is going to be, very politely, of course, and I would say that's where that conversation probably reaches its peak, is they don't know, and they can't know. And we need to point to the very words of Jesus saying, nobody will know. So, after that first sentence in our statement, we then read uh, the judgment. So God is going to raise the dead and judge the world. 
Je sorry, Jesus is going to raise the dead and judge the world. And in our statement, then we read, Jesus will receive his own and establish his earthly thousand-year reign. So now again, I'm not as concerned with how we interpret this thousand-year reign, though I do want to show you where this comes from Scripture. And so this is Revelation 20. We're going to read this, and I'm going to talk about a, a couple of different views uh, for this. The four predominant views that are held are dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, postmillennialism, that's a funny word, and amillennialism. So we hold, in the AGC, we hold to the first view of that, and I'll explain why as we read this here. So Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to read you the whole chapter just because it really, it, it just needs to be read in context. So John writes this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Excuse me. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the, sea, the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his, present, sorry, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So now, maybe you noticed as we were reading or as you were listening how many times it mentions this thousand years. It's quite a few times that it's mentioned. Now, this is where it gets a little bit difficult. Uh, and I've said this before, is the vast majority of the Bible, so basically almost everything other than Revelation that's written is historical fact. It's past. It's, it's happened. And so it's much easier to interpret what has happened than things that talk about that will happen. There's a great deal of uh, imagery and allegory and, and different things written in Revelation and how we are to interpret those things. There's just many, many scholars that have all kinds of different opinions on those things. 
And so when we look to Revelation and we try to seek how to understand it, is some people interpret things from a much more literal standpoint, some from a more um, figurative standpoint, uh, and kind of anywhere in between that. And so it can be difficult for us to figure out how we're going to interpret these things. From Revelation as a whole, there are so many things written in it. And if you remember the context, so John, um, one of the disciples of Jesus, he was tri- they tried to kill him, right? They tried to martyr him. And according to church history, they poured boiling tar over him to try and kill him, and, and he didn't die. And that scared everyone so bad that he was then cast to the island of Patmos by himself as an exile. And while he was on Patmos, God brought John up into this vision to see what the end was going to look like. And then John writes these things down for us. And that's what the book of Revelation is. And so even if we think about that, over like 2,000 years ago, John is seeing things from the end of time and and then is having to write these things down. How could he possibly understand what he's seeing? Just think of the technological advancements that we have even in the last 100 years and try explaining those. Uh, Maybe you've had this opportunity where you're explaining to your grandparent how to use the smartphone or the iPad. And sometimes some people have a really hard time getting that. And then imagine now going a couple of thousand years into the future rather than just a few technological advancements. Is there's lots in Revelation that I'm not certain how to interpret. I, I don't have the simple answer for this, but when I read Revelation chapter 20 and I see thousand-year reign, thousand-year reign, thousand-year reign, at the end of the thousand-year reign, when I see that repeated over and over and over, to me it goes beyond symbolic into something that is more literal. And so that's the reason that I think this is the, uh, a, a dispensational premillennialism is kind of the, the correct way to interpret that. However, I want to be clear and I want to hold this open-handed to realize that some of what's written in Revelation might be a little bit more symbolic. It might not be meant to be exactly literal. And so I'm not really worried whether people think that that the millennium is a literal thousand-year reign or whether it's a pre as far as um, kind of the the order of events of rapture and tribulation, these things, uh, or if it's post. The only really one I'm concerned with is the amillennial view. And the amillennial view doesn't just take this as figurative, but takes it to the next step of where uh, the belief is that there will no, there'll be no reign of Christ on the earth, but that's all just, uh, just allegory. And I struggle with that because of how many times in Revelation it talks about Jesus' reign on the earth before we go back to be with Jesus. And so I struggle with that, and I think that if we start to interpret large chunks of scripture strictly as allegory, what I've seen happen is then we start to look back on other scripture and say, well, maybe this is too. and Maybe this is too. And we start going down a slippery slope of where we start to interpret the scripture based on what we already think rather than allowing the scripture to interpret for us how to think. So all that to say really this is, yes, I think the premillennial view is correct. But if I have a friend who's a different view of that, uh, a post-millennial view, um, one that's more, uh, in less literal than what my view would be, is I, I don't think that's essential at all for salvation. I don't. And I just want to clarify that for us. But I, the reason it's in the statement is as the AGC, we believe this is 
what the Bible teaches, but this is one of those rare moments because it's future events that we're not 100% certain of, and so we want to hold with open hands. So that's the millennium. So then we read about the judgment in our statement, which we talked about a little bit. And let me just clarify this uh, again. Is so at the judgment, God separates those who have chosen to, they've confessed Jesus as Lord and those who have rejected Jesus. And according to scripture, there's two options in front of us, heaven and hell. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But what's happened in today's evangelical kind of Christianity is that there's been a big push to try and make hell as a metaphorical or a figurative or an uh, allegory type of reading in the New Testament. And so they've tried to say that hell is not actually even a literal place, but it's, it's just metaphor. And I think that's dangerous. So this kind of came to prominence with a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell. And in it, he builds argument on argument on argument that is very philosophically rich, very interesting, uh, very compelling at times, but often ignores what the scriptures actually say and doesn't study it in context, but just takes one verse and then says, well, this actually means this, but doesn't do any job of explaining around the context why. And so it became a very kind of dangerous book because the belief was essentially that perhaps hell's not even real and that everyone will end up in heaven one day. So that's kind of this universalistic view. It's universalism is the theology behind that, that at any point, Rob Bell coins this phrase, love wins, everyone will be in heaven. And that's a great thought to have. That's a great idea to have as far as it makes life a lot easier for us, doesn't it? Because then if my loved ones who don't know Jesus die, I don't have to worry about anything. It also means that I don't really need to go and share the love of Jesus with anybody because we're all going to end up in the same place anyway. And so there's some danger to that book, and, and I would say it's, it's very philosophical and not very scriptural. Rather, I would encourage you to read a book uh, called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. In it, they look at the scripture. What does Jesus teach about hell? What does the New Testament teach about hell? And how can it be understood? Some, uh, and Rob Bell does this in Love Wins, he argues that Jesus actually doesn't talk very much about hell. But if you do a little search, like if you have, like, if you have Bible software, you can go to BibleGateway.com and you just type in some of these things. What you find out is that actually Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person in scripture. And that's just real easy, simple search, and you'll find that. So let me just read to you uh, a few things. So in, in Luke 16, verse 23, or, Sorry, let's back up. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus refers to hell as an, e an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Luke 16, 23, Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, and he says hell will be a place of eternal torment. In Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus says that hell is an unquenchable fire. In Matthew 13, verse 42, Jesus says hell is a place of anguish and the gnashing of teeth. And there are other places as well. Those are just some examples. And it becomes very dangerous when we want to interpret those from a, a figurative or symbolic thing when Jesus says so clearly what the place is, what it's been created for, what its purpose is, and what will happen to those who go there. Why would Jesus talk that way if everyone would end up in heaven? There's another view called annihilationism, which is basically this idea that if you don't know Christ, if you haven't repented and turned towards Jesus, is that you will only suffer in hell as long as your deeds are, are deserving of. So people who were worse will suffer longer than people who were not worse. But scripture never 
talks about that. Scripture says that once you've broken, in, in James chapter 2, it says once you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole of the law. When we start to put levels of sin and we say this sin is worse and so you're going to be judged worse for this than that, all we're doing is we're saying there's people that are worse than me. But what we need to understand, and we've looked at this when we looked at redemption and salvation, is that I, you, all of us are desperately wicked in our hearts. Jeremiah says it. Proverbs says it. And we desperately need Jesus Christ. And when he comes to us, Apostle Paul says, we are transformed and we are made a new creation because the Holy Spirit comes on us because we are in desperate need of a Savior. I can't do it on my own. And so to try and make some kind of an argument that we will only suffer for a certain period of time based on something becomes dangerous. And so that's why when we have in our statement eternal conscious punishment, is I think that's true. I think that's what Scripture teaches us, and I think that that's important. Now, I do have other friends who are Christians, and I do believe they love Jesus, and I do believe that they're going to go to heaven, that do hold some differing views on hell. But I think it's, again, a very slippery slope to believe if we start to make hell some kind of a figurative understanding. And so I would always encourage you, when you are making any stance, when you're making any point of theology, you need to read Scripture and make sure that how you're coming to conclusion is based on what Scripture teaches not the other way around, not deciding what you think and then going to Scripture to try and prove your point. I read a, a Tim Keller quote this morning that was really interesting. He was talking about the election down in the States, and, and immediately I did what I should never do. I say this all the time. What did I do? Anybody know? I read the comments, right? Don't read comments. I, I should stop doing that. But what I noticed is in this very simple, short statement he wrote, the ways in which people chose to understand that we're very clear that they already had their mind made up. And that becomes so dangerous. We need to go to Scripture. Even, even if we say, I'm certain of this point of doctrine, why do we think it? Let's go to Scripture and make sure that we understand it from what Scripture teaches us, not what we or what our culture wants to teach us. So to finish, my last, uh, just last little bit of, on hell here is this. I would way, way rather believe in some form of annihilationism or that hell doesn't exist because that would just be really comforting to me. And I think in some ways what people try to do is they say it's a lot more appealing in the sense of a loving God would only do this. And then we start to box God into this place of where we think we understand, where we know who God is and we know what he, what he should do. And I think that's very dangerous. Is what we need to read is scripture and to recognize that if God is love, if God is mercy, if God is justice, if God is holy, all of these things we can't really come to peace with. Because some of those are opposites, right? How can God be completely loving and yet completely holy? I, I don't know how to process all of that. And so for me to create some kind of a, a doctrine that just appeases myself in that is dangerous. I think rather I need to hold both of those things and recognize that God is God and I can't fully ever grasp everything about his character. I just need to trust that how he's revealed himself to us in Scripture is the truth. The last sentence of our statement says this, that God will rule over his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. Revelation 21 verse 1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now there's even two interpretations on how to deal with the new heaven and the new earth here. And I don't think that either of them are actually all that important. I'm going to give them to you just so that you know. But I think, and we've, we've left this statement, uh, we've not chosen a side on this because we just don't think that either of them actually hold any more weight than the other do. Some people think that the heavens and the earth and all those things will be completely destroyed and then God will create new. Some people hold that what God's going to do is he's going to redeem what he has already created into something new. And I think there's biblical support for both of those ideas. And I think there's some really good logic through Scripture where you could come to conclusion on both. I, I don't know if this is brand new or if this is something that God redeems to something new. But what I do know is that those of us who are in heaven with God, that there will be no more crying, there'll be no more mourning, there'll be no tears, there'll be no pain, because all those things will have passed away. We will be with God for eternity. Nothing could be greater than that. And so why do all these things matter? Why does it matter what we believe about the end? And I'm just going to pick on Merv just a little bit because obviously he wrote that one note in it as a joke. But I've heard many people talk about this kind of this, this pantheistic type of theology and that's actually, pantheism is actually a type of theology and it's different. So we'll deal with that another time. Is that people will just say, it doesn't matter in the end, it will all be fine. But I think it does matter. Because as we read scripture, I don't think a book of Revelation to prepare us for the end would be written for us if it wasn't important. When I read Revelation, what I see is that the end is coming, and I don't know when the end is coming, and that ought to give me a sense of urgency to declare Christ to those whom I love. I've said this before, but it's been said you can't bring anything to heaven with you, but you can bring those that you love, depending on their belief. And everyone in my family, everyone that I love, everyone that I care for, my desperate desire is that I will be able to be with them in eternity. And I think all of us want the same thing. Not one of us wants someone that we know that we care for to have to be in hell. And so what Revelation, what the end times should do for us is it should give us this motive, this desire to go and declare Christ because we don't know if we have another day. I don't know that I have tomorrow. I don't know that I have the next day. Jesus could come at any moment or alternatively, my life could end at any moment. The reality of that is, is always amongst us. Every time we get behind the wheel of a car, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Right? And when we start to understand these things from not just a, like a theoretical way, but into a practical way, is we go, I do not want those that I love to have to spend an eternity in hell. I want to teach them. I want to show them through Scripture who Jesus is and why this matters. Jesus is coming again. And at that point, Apostle Paul says it this way, the judgment will come. It's appointed one for a man to be born, to die, and to face judgment. There's not a second chance after that. There's many second chances whenever we wake up and we still have breath in our lungs, and that should give us the urgency and the desire to tell people, here's who Jesus is. Here's what it means to follow after him. So those are our seven points uh, of doctrine that we hold uh, tightly because we believe they're so important, they're so central for our faith in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do now is uh, hopefully you have your elements of communion uh, on you. And if you don't, if you snuck past the little table and you want to just jump back there, you go ahead and grab something, is 
I, I did not plan this to be the end times, our last point of doctrine on communion Sunday. That just worked out the way. It seems like God does that uh, all the time. Is that part of this is that we remember. We focus on the cross. We remind ourselves of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, his love for us. But part of communion is also reminding us as the church that Jesus is going to come again. And that should fill us with hope. That should fill us with a sense of urgency. That should fill us with a sense of mission and purpose so that when we leave this place, that yes, we have jobs and families and all these things that we have to do, and those are all good things. But ultimately, our purpose is to declare Christ to the nations. And so when we leave this place, communion should always bring us back into the central purpose of God's love for me, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and then remind us that he is coming again. So I just want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then we'll take communion together. And, and again, I should mention, I know that for some of you walking up and grabbing a, like a, a juice box and a cracker is, is a strange thing for you to consider and, and do. And maybe even for some of you, it feels like, like this is almost wrong. This is almost sacrilegious. But let me just say this. When Jesus met together with his disciples for this last supper, it was exactly that. It was supper around a table together. And he used that simple moment of, of normal family time meal to then teach and to show them when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. When you eat and when you drink, come together with purpose and meaning and remind yourself of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit funny to have a juice box or a cracker that looks different or that comes from a package. But what we want to do is we want to gather together as the saints, as the church, and we want to remind ourselves every month, regularly, that Jesus died on the cross for us, that he rose again, and that he is coming again. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, excuse me, unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the reminder to us there is the way in which we come together for communion. We come together and we eat and we celebrate this because of what Jesus has done and that ought to cause us to slow down and evaluate our own hearts. Am I following after Christ? Am I doing the things that he has called me to do? Or have I, have I gotten distracted by what's happening in the world and I've lost sight of what's truly important? Is these moments just ought to slow us down, remind us of the fact that Jesus, 
went to the cross, that only through his blood could forgiveness be brought. And so we gather together to examine our hearts, repent of the things in our lives that we know we need to change, and trust in the Holy Spirit's leading that he will equip us to make those changes. So let me just pray, and then we'll eat the the bread together. God, as we hold the bread in our hands here, God, we are reminded of our desperate need for you. That not one of us on our own deserves salvation. And yet, you love us so much that you were unwilling for us to not have an opportunity at forgiveness. And so, God, we thank you that Jesus came to this earth, that he lived this perfect life, and that he died on the cross in our place as our atonement or as our substitute for sin so that we don't have to pay those consequences. So, God, in our own hearts and in our own minds right now, as we evaluate our own lives, as we consider the things that we do and the motivation behind those things, God, we just pray that that we would recognize when we are not listening to you, when we are choosing to listen to our own selfish desires. God, would we repent of the things that we know that are wrong and would we turn towards you, choosing to do what is right? God, we thank you that Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might have a chance to be with you. Amen. Let's break, let's eat together in remembrance of him. God, as we now hold what represents your blood in our hands, God, we are again reminded that your blood and your blood alone could forgive sin. God, we are thankful beyond what we could ever express that Jesus was willing to go to the cross. And God, we are so grateful that Jesus rose from the dead, showing that death is not the end. God, we celebrate, especially this morning as we've discussed, we celebrate that you are coming again and that you will receive those of us who have declared Jesus as Lord to yourself. God, we, we pray that you would give us a sense of urgency to declare to those that we know and love that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way. So we thank you for the blood of Jesus which forgives our sin. Amen. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, as we now finish up this morning and as we go off to our homes and our families and our jobs and uh, all the things that we have in front of us this week. 
God, we pray that none of those things would distract us from what is most important. Would we honor you by the way in which we live and the way that we act this week and the things that we say? Would people see not us, but would they see Jesus in us despite our imperfections and despite the things that we do sometimes? God, we pray that we would listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you have given to us so that we would be able to live in a way that just points towards you. And God, I pray that you would give us courage, that we would be bold, and that we would have the right words to say at the right times to the people that we encounter, that they would know that there is a God in heaven who loves them desperately, who has made a way for them to come to salvation. God, may this gospel message, may it never become something that is normal, but would it always be extraordinary to us. As we go from here, be at work in our hearts. Help us to focus on you. We love you. Amen. It's been a pleasure to have you with us this morning. Uh, just remind you that if you're going to visit for a little while, just try and uh, abide by the regulations that are in place and respect them. Uh, there's no rush to necessarily get out of here. And if you have any questions or, or want to ask anything, I, I will be available, of course. 